This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns on Monday. By the way, you can hear both of us together tonight as part of the Zoomer Radio New Year's Eve special. It's going to be a great show. Eve and Norma and Norm and Neil and Sam and Libby and myself. So hope you tune in and listen to the program that was uh, socially distanced when it was recorded all according to public health guidelines. Well, with uh, the changing of the years from 2020 to 2021, the focus turns to the latest developments on the COVID-19 vaccine front. But what should distribution look like? How will older Canadians be incorporated into the rollout plan? And what might the administration of the vaccines look like at local pharmacies and doctor's offices? We have so many questions, us Zoomers, and I promised you the other day when the phone lines were jammed that we would have this discussion again with a different panel of experts. So you are welcome to join the conversation if you have questions, comments about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout and when you might potentially get yours. The numbers to call 41 416- 1-6-3-6-0-0-7-40, toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Joining us to get some answers, Shoppers Drug Mart pharmacist John Papasturgio, family physician Dr. Nadia Alam, and Dr. Nahid Dosani, a palliative care physician and health justice activist. Welcome all. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks, thanks for, for having us. Dr. Dosani, I will begin with you. Uh, what do you know of how the initial vaccine rollout is going for the high priority healthcare workers? Uh, and we've just heard long term care residents are about to receive some vaccines. Well, I mean, just generally dealing with some more positive news today. I actually got my va- my vaccine today, so um, ah, I, I yeah. congratulations. I was, thank you. I mean, you know, thank you, and and it just allows us to be able to serve the community better. And I have to say, it's the first time I've been in a healthcare space where people are just really happy. There's a positive vibe, um, and that's really great. But what was unfortunate over the holidays is that the, the government took a break, um, and delays like that can have ramifications. But I'm I'm glad to hear we're we're um, we're off to the races, long-term care. We're we're seeing health workers um, getting vaccinated, and there are discussions about high-priority groups, um, but we haven't got a lot of clarity around people who live in congregate settings, for example, people who experience homelessness, the population I serve. So I look forward to, to learning more as the days and weeks come. Where did you get your vaccine? Um, I got it at the hospital I work at. <laughs> um, and so because I work in the inpatient um, COVID unit in hospital, um, I was uh, prioritized 
through a lottery, and I'm really grateful and and humbled this morning. Well, we're what we're hearing here about uh, Chester Village, a long-term care home uh, off the Danforth. They do not have a COVID outbreak there, and of the 198 residents, 197 have given their consent to receive the vaccine. Uh, it sounds like it was quite an emotional moment this morning, as you mentioned, Dr. Dosani, when the Moderna vaccine doses arrived at their doorstep. Uh, that's what you're, you experienced today as well. Absolutely. You know, you, one has to uh, really, you know, put yourself in the shoes of people who are working on the front lines of this pandemic and also residents who live in long-term care who have, who have been at high risk of illness and death. And we've seen that in our long-term care facilities. So um, it, is a, it is a breath of fresh air um, in our health facilities today. Um, and there's, a, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I think a lot of people are latching onto that hope and how appropriate on New Year's Eve. Let's recap, Dr. Dasani, before I get to our other guests. Who will get the shot in the first three months of the year, uh, as we've been told thus far? Yeah, so my understanding is um, from a provincial perspective here in Ontario, and it is similar in many jurisdictions across Canada, that frontline health workers, particularly those who work in long-term care and congregate settings, or those who work in high-risk COVID areas will be prioritized. Residents of long-term care and other frail seniors will be prioritized. And I understand that our First Nations communities um, uh, in in Ontario will also be prioritized as part of that first-pass approach. And then uh, essential, other essential workers before we get into the 75-plus crowd. That's that's right, correct. And then there is a stage two where, you know, there's discussion about other vulnerable people, including those who live in congregate settings. And, and again, just mentioning a population that I serve that's near and dear to my heart, people experiencing homelessness. But I understand some of this is still to be, this information is still to be released. We know General Hillier gave a, a fantastic update earlier this week, and, and I'm still trying to, you know, um, uh, grapple with all the information that was put out there. Um, and, but I, but I, I'm appreciative of a coherent and cogent plan given what happened over the holidays. Let's go to Dr. Alam now. Uh, doctor, thanks for joining us. Your Thank impression you thanks. Your impression of how the next phase will go, um, do you think or have you received any information about that? Not really. Um, I, I know that there are, the priority populations have been identified and, and I totally agree with Dr. Dasani that um, these are the populations that are most vulnerable, that are at highest risk. They should be vaccinated first. After that, there's a big question mark. We know that there are plans to have 8.5 million people in Ontario um, vaccinated by, by the summer. That's going to require an all-hands-on-deck approach. What the, that approach actually looks like is still um, not available to uh, the public yet or to physicians yet. I think as far as I know, that is still being ironed out. This is much like we saw in the pandemic chain. This is, this is a rapidly changing environment. It's a rapidly evolving environment and, um, trying to stay up, keep up with all of the news and all of the information is, is tough. I think, you know, we've all been through what this, this year. It's just unprecedented, uh, since, yeah. Uh, there are probably only a couple of people who experienced the Spanish flu of a hundred and some years ago. 
Um, so it has been unprecedented. I think people feel some optimism knowing that they will get a vaccine this year. But knowing where that finish line is going to come also means so much to people. For the 75 plus crowd, they've been told April. Does this seem realistic to you? It depends on how they roll it out. We had issues with um, getting flu shots out to high-priority population. The flu shot was disseminated and distributed through pharmacies and through family physician offices, and um, as well as through hospitals for inpatients, um, rehab patients, that sort of thing. That said, I know from personal experience, as well as talking to other family doctors across the province, we struggled. We tried to get our highest priority patients in first, the ones who have chronic illnesses, the ones who are elderly, the ones who are frail, the ones who are in immunosuppressants or who have cancer, that sort of thing, right? The ones who really need the flu shots um, first, but we were limited by the supplies that we were getting. Um, we would order for that population and receive only a portion of the supply. And a part of me is very worried that we may run into the same sort of scenario again, um, given that the supplies for COVID-19 vaccine are limited. Um, we'll have to, again, do a targeted approach to make sure that we capture our most highest risk patients, whatever their age is, because there are some young people who are at very high risk as well um, because of their illnesses and because of their circumstances. But to do that, we need thorough information on their health history and on their social history. And that means tapping into the family physician workforce in, in a very big way. And then working with our partners in allied health, including pharmacy, to distribute the vaccine in a fair way. This is the perfect time to bring in John Papasturgio, <laughs> uh, Shoppers Drug Mart pharmacist and owner on the Danforth. John, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, nice to talk to you. It's been a while. I want to ask you what Dr. Alam was talking about there. First, about the flu vaccine rollout at, at both of your shoppers on the Danforth, the regular shot, the high dose. How did it go for you? Do you have any left? Uh, you know, what? It, what? where in the process are you with that? Yeah, no, vaccine has been out for a while. All we have left is intranasal uh, vaccine, uh, uh, but all the injectable vaccine, uh, you know, in my stories anyways, has been has been gone for about a month uh, or so now. We saw demand like we've never, uh, I think, seen uh, in the past. Uh, pharmacies really had to change the way they did things, I think, to not only accommodate the demand, but also manage it, you know, within the context of social distancing, we have limitations in the stores. And at the same time, we're offering uh, asymptomatic COVID testing. So pharmacy as a profession has learned a lot over the last uh, year or so. And I think we've changed uh, the way that we would have historically uh, done things. That being said, I think uh, once enough vaccine becomes available, uh, we, you know, we're here to be able to offer it to the patients. Um, you know, back in the day, flu vaccine wasn't all released at once. Uh, uh, generally, the first couple of weeks were for the higher risk groups and we're able to manage that as well. So patients with comorbidities, our seniors' population and whatnot. I think once the guidelines, uh, you know, are, are very well established, we'll be able to work within that context. I think 
from the patient's perspective, we're the easiest place to get vaccinated. Yes, right. It does, well, it does make sense. Uh, on my news this morning, I was reporting that there has been a pitch by both shoppers and London Drugs to dispense the vaccine once it's widely available. So what does that mean? Where in the talks uh, do you know that they're at? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's beyond me. I think uh, at a very high level, they're probably, uh, you know, negotiating that right now. I think at the same time, you know, the Pharmacists Association is probably, uh, you know, involved. They advocate on, on behalf of all pharmacists. We know we have over 4,000 pharmacies in Ontario. So the network is there. And the, more importantly, the distribution network is there to get the vaccine into the stores, do it quickly, do it safely. Um, you know, uh, the doctor before me said the challenge this year was with the supply. I anticipate once, uh, you know, uh, we get the vaccine in, in stores, I'm going to be seeing lineups that are a kilometer long because I did see that early on in the flu season uh, as well. So it's going to be, I think, managing that will be the biggest uh, challenge uh, at the store level. Well, and you bring up a great point. I'll put this to Dr. Dasani about the lineups for the flu shot. Uh, clearly, you don't want to have a lot of people congregating to get the shot. And yet the doctors we had on the other day thought that likely you won't sign up for the COVID-19 vaccine. It will be similar to how the flu vaccine was rolled out, Dr. Dasani. Yeah, and you know, we have to think about when we create systems like that where people line up or even log on onto a computer for an appointment, uh, like who are, who are we directing that those resources to and who's being missed out? Um, we know that when the COVID assessment centers move to an online format for the first, um, this was earlier on in the pandemic, for the first bit, you know, people who didn't have computers, smartphones, many people that I serve who live in poverty or experience homelessness didn't have access. And what I worry about systems that move online is that, you know, if you don't have that, in, in, you know, that IT infrastructure or technology um, or the poverty of technology, you might not have access. The other thing we need to consider in this conversation is, is uh, vaccine hesitancy and any vaccine rollout strategy can't just be about who's going to give the, the vaccine and how. It has to be about communications. It has to be about how we're relating to people. Um, we know that many communities, people who live in low-income racialized communities, have a mistrust of the healthcare system before this pandemic. And the way that our essential workers, many who are racialized, have been treated during this pandemic, um, for example, having to work through without paid sick leave, the, it's built on that mistrust. How are we building connections with community um, and building trust around the facts around the vaccine? This is not anti. This is not being anti-vax. I just want to clarify mm-hmm. that uh, you know vaccine hesitancy is a different concept. And what we need to do is empower you know racialized leaders, faith leaders, cultural groups, health providers who have trust in these communities to build those trusting connections. Uh, we do have a couple of questions here for you from Zoomer Radio listeners. And by the way, if you're just tuning in, we have Dr. Nahid Dosani with us, Dr. Nadia Alam, and a pharmacist John Papasturgio. It's Jane for Libby on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Dr. Alam, what are your thoughts about that in terms of when it's time for people to quote unquote line up and get their COVID vaccine? I agree with what the guests before have said. I'm I think we should be going by booked appointments. We need to track these doses just because they are a two-dose regimen. And we know that the best protection comes from getting both doses. So we need to track this very closely. This can't be a free-for-all. It has to be a planned-out campaign. Vaccine hesitancy is going to be a big deal. People are going to wait and see how 
friends deal, how friends react to the vaccine, whether colleagues react to it, that sort of thing. What is the media saying? What are other people saying? It's important to realize Canada is one of the most diverse countries in the world. We have an, an incredible immigrant population. A lot of those immigrants also work in our frontline services in, in factories and in buses and grocery stores and healthcare. And, and often some of them have um, lower paid jobs. So a lot of what Dr. Dasani said about how they've been treated and how that has contributed to trust or mistrust in the system matters. What also matters is that Many of them are coming from countries where there is general distrust of the government. Many of them are coming from countries where the healthcare system is not robust and is only available to the privileged few. And so they rely more on information through their personal networks, their informal networks. We need to tap into that and provide culturally sensitive and culturally appropriate information and give them a place where they can go to, to talk to a trusted person. And that could be colleagues, that could be their faith leaders, that could be community centers, that can also be their family doctors. There are over 9,000 family doctors across Ontario, um, and there are many, many hundreds of nurse practitioners. There are thousands of pharmacists, as we've already heard. These are people on the front lines who are already communicating with patients about pros and cons of um, medications, pros and cons of, of uh, healthcare investigations and treatments, as well as vaccines, right? And vaccine hesitancy with other vaccines in the past, as well as this one. So we need to rely on these networks and realize that when we start communicating, right, when we communicate widely, it can't just be a central top-down communication plan. It actually has to be a very distributed plan, which relies and taps into all of those informal networks, those friends, those co-workers, those colleagues, the news over the lunch break, that sort of thing, to get information out in very simple, easy to understand, easy to access. Right, because this is, as you bring up, um, it's all the more important because of the socioeconomic dynamic of COVID, because you have uh, marginalized people living in high-rises in multifamily situations, and we see from the maps that's that's where COVID is. Yep. I grew up in Thorncliffe Park. I remember this, right? I remember how the neighbors would talk. My parents would trust their neighbors and their family far more then they would trust anything they heard from the government on TV. Interesting. And, and we've been in Canada for a very, very long time. You see the same sort of thing in recent immigrants. You see the same sort of thing in marginalized populations. People go to the voices they trust. Those voices are not always the established hierarchy that's in our society. Right. And, and John, I'm thinking about uh, shoppers, drug marts. Everybody goes to shoppers uh, or they go to Rexall or, they, you know, wherever they go. Um, that that could be a place, too, where um, you can disseminate the information to the marginalized communities because there's uh, shoppers in their neighborhood. Absolutely. I, I mean, we own that relationship with the patients. I think we burned that trust. The reality is when the you know, pandemic hit, uh, a lot of the physicians went to virtual care. A lot of the offices shut down. I know in my community, uh, we were really one of the only places you could go at times. Uh, uh, and they were coming to us looking for all types of services, injections beyond just vaccination, things like polio, 
other things that where they, you know, they weren't able to get uh, access to that kill. I think obviously it's gotten better now, but I think uh, the point here is we're we're in the community, we're available, we're accessible. We don't show, shut down, and there's always someone there. Uh, you know, whenever the stores open, I think uh, the last speaker brought up another point around the two dose uh, vaccine. This is going to be particularly a challenge. I, we're used to giving flu once and they're out the door and they're gone. I think. The message here is we're going to have to get them back to that second dose. Yes. Irregardless where they're going, that's not going to be an easy task. We know uh, whole regimen adult dose adherence for vaccines is quite low, actually, even for the most common vaccines. People don't come back. They forget, you know, they've had an issue with their first injection. How are we going to tackle that? I think technology is going to be a big part of it. We have that in place already. But we're going to have to be uh, driving these patients back to wherever they've got their first dose to get their second one. Uh, that reminds me um, of the the grade eight vaccine uh, that the girls were given. I think the yep. boys get it now, too, for it's cervical cancer. So that was a two dose vaccine yep. is a two dose vaccine. And Absolutely. that that was administered through public health. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And yep. we've got we've got some data on that, even for. A vaccine like that, when you look at the adult population, the adherence doesn't get much higher than 40 or 50 percent for that second dose, Uh right, outside of the pediatric population. So this is going to be, I think, something that we haven't spent enough time talking about. But these patients are not always easy to get back in the second time. So how how are we going to do that, right, on a large scale? Okay, we're talking about uh, distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine, a lot of which still has to be ironed out. I promised you I would get to your questions. We'll do that now uh, for our doctors, Dr. Desani, Dr. Alam, and our pharmacist, John Papasturgio. Bill and Scarborough, go ahead. Oh, hi there. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, Just have a quick question regarding uh, the vaccine. Uh, Once uh, a vaccinated person somehow is in touch with uh, an infected person. You, I don't know how long it would take for the vaccine to eradicate that virus once a vaccinated person gets it. During that time, would that person be a carrier? Could he be, there's a risk he could pass it on to somebody else? Who wants to take that? Pardon me? Who wants to take that question of our experts? <laughs> Dr. Dasani? Uh, maybe Dr. Allen. Okay, Dr. Allen. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um. So the vaccine, um, which has been tested in thousands and thousands of people and has proven safety, um, it, it does require a bit of time to ramp up protection. That's why when people get the vaccine, some of them may have a sore arm, some of them may have some muscle pain, some of them may get a mild fever. All of that is your immune system getting used to the vaccine. It's signs of the vaccine working to get your immune system ready. If you come in contact with a COVID-positive person, um, after that, say after a week or two, by and large, you will be protected. However, you should follow public health guidelines, isolate if necessary, self-monitor if necessary, just in case. The vaccine is very effective. It's not 100%, though. So, Dr. Right? Alam, it's it's around 80% uh, for the Pfizer vaccine once you've had the first dose and then rises to 95% after yeah. the second dose. But what is that window after the second dose before you can say, okay, I'm 95% effective at um, making sure I don't get COVID? After the second dose? Yes, maybe? yes. Um, I would expect around a week. I'd have okay. to look it up to be absolutely okay. sure, though. 
All right, let's go to Tim in Brampton. Hi, Tim. You're on Fight Back. Go ahead. Hey, Dean. I've got, first of all, a solution for distribution, and secondly, a comment. The solution is easy. It's OHIP. Everybody in Ontario is listed. It shows names, age, location, medical health, probably even shows doctor. They had computer systems started in 76, and I presume they've improved since then. You could set up a field definition, do your selection based on whatever criteria you set. I would personally do it by postal code or county, and then I would organize the people to go to locations that wouldn't be overpowered by long lines, to be vaccinated at what could be done within a day, a half a day, whatever. That's the way I would do it. You wouldn't miss anybody. I would pick the location with the biggest outbreak and do it first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are going to get upset, but that's the way it is. And uh, you're, I'll get our experts to oh, comment on you that. do that, mm-hmm. I would like to say this, because that's my suggestion. It can be done. It's not hard. But everybody can criticize. Somebody's got to be first. Somebody's got to be last. And everybody, every group that's activist is going to have a reason to complain. Everybody can complain. But somebody's got to make a decision. And I would take the worst area, set them up, say there's these locations, these people I would contact and say that's where you go. These people I would contact and say that's where you would okay. go. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, thank you, Tim. I appreciate it. John Papasturgio, um, since you've actually been dispensing the flu vaccine, uh, how does Tim's suggestion yeah. ring with you? Yeah, Tim's uh, pretty close. It's a pretty archaic system, but it's got all that ability. I mean, and we, we built our own technology to allow us to track, to see, uh, you know, uh, what patients' uh, risk factors are, comorbidities, all these other things. So, yeah, we're very capable of doing that. We've actually developed a whole host of technology around this. We have contactless enrollment now patients before they come into the store. They can sign up. And so all they do is pretty much walk in, scan a QR code, and get vaccinated. And we've got and all that documentation uh, is kept on the back end electronically. So it's, it's all there. I think the beginning of the challenge will be availability of the vaccine. Once we have enough, it's not going to be, uh, you know, extremely difficult to vaccinate patients. We're doing it now. We do it on a high level. And this year, my pharmacy, we traditionally we were given about 1,000 flu shots per store. That was well over 5,000 this year. So it just kind of speaks to the demand that we're going to expect to see uh, and being able to, I think, uh, do all the documentation and everything else. The other aspect of this, and I know it's going to happen, is uh, patients are going to want very good documentation because... Uh, if they're going to want to travel, I can see a country saying uh, you're going to need proof that you've been vaccinated or this or that. So do we have all that built in? Because we're going to get a wave of patients coming back to us. I have no doubt saying, hey, I need proof of my vaccination. Right. And right. historically, we haven't done a good job at that. We have no universal tracking system. It's uh, you know kept in our system, but we have nothing that's patient-facing or that would you know uh, uh, keep other stakeholders happy, I think. So that's something... We're going to have to consider as well. And John, just remind me. So when somebody comes in to get a flu shot, what kind of documentation do they give you? Like, do we give them? Or what, what do they need to do? Do they need to they show proof of? Just their OHIP card. And OHIP really, card. Okay. And we can even vaccinate patients without an OHIP card as well uh, as part of the public health program. So really, if they're here 
and they need a vaccine, we could give it to them. But generally, it's run through all hip, and that's how we get reimbursed and everything else. So we have that we have that card made available to us. Okay, we need to. Hey, yes, may go I ahead. Add something to yes, that, please. If you don't mind, um, just to add to what John was saying, I agree with what he says. One of the things that I would also mention is because it is a two-dose regimen for both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, family doctors and nurse practitioners have plenty of experience in experience managing this. And the reason I say that is when you think of all the childhood vaccines, we bring patients back at very high levels of uptake for their two-month shot, their four-month shot, their six-month shot. So we've got an established infrastructure that we can draw on. It's important to remember that family doctors are have been open all through the pandemic. My office has been open right since March, and I've been seeing patients both virtually and in person. However, there is this perception that family doctors are closed. So I would ask patients to double-check, because I would bet you dollars to donuts most family doctors are open. The other thing to remember, I think the caller's suggestion about using OHIP numbers, it's great. There are a number of patients who do not have OHIP numbers Recent immigrants, refugees, homeless people, people who live on reserves may not have OHIP numbers, um, people who are in shelters, people whose OHIP numbers have expired, right? So yes. they, they are still covered through an emergency act in the, for healthcare in Ontario. They are still eligible for the vaccine, but they may be a population that may be missed. And so it's important to remember, it's important to look around at who's there at the table and also at who's not there and make sure that those voices are represented, those people are caught, those people are tracked and offered the same chance at healthcare as everybody else. Are you okay, all three of you, just to stick around for a few more minutes? We have a lot of calls here. Absolutely. (laughs) Dr. Desani, would you like to add to that in terms of the registration process? Yeah, no, I really appreciate the, the caller's recommendation on OHIP. I was actually going to say just what Dr. Allen said, but just to, to echo that, if, if, we, if, if COVID-19 impacts marginalized people the most, so frail seniors, low-income racialized people, marginalized people in our communities, um, then we must be wary of the systems we depend on. So if we use OHIP as the sole system, we would actually miss out on a lot of people, and we would miss out on a lot of people who are at highest risk of COVID-19. So um, from a health equity perspective, um, it's really important to consider uninsured people, non-status people, people experiencing homelessness who have expired cards, and, and refugees and immigrants, for example. So I appreciate that point as well. Okay, let's go to Jag in Mississauga. Jag, go ahead. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, I sure can. Yeah, I just want to respond to, I think, one of the, one of the speakers that mentioned about, about marginalized communities or immigrant communities. Uh, they don't have faith in their government. I'm, my parents are from India. Right? I was born in Canada. But I want to say that those people left those countries because they don't have faith in those governments. If anything, my parents have probably more faith in the government here than I do myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes, goes across, uh, you know, all, all these communities who have come here, they have uh, more faith in what the government's doing here, and they would trust them. But I do think there is an agenda out there where uh, we're being... We're being racialized, and we don't want to be racialized. We, I think that if, if there is an issue, there's an issue between rich versus poor. It's got nothing to do, but to do with uh, to like race or, or, or blacks or browns or Chinese people not 
getting enough uh, services. Right. I think that that's the difference between racialized and marginalized, right? Because marginalized marginalized is based on socioeconomics. Racialized is based on color of skin and, and heritage. Exactly. And I've heard both being said, and I don't think it's a race issue at all. Right, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So we're dealing we're we're dealing with the the high rises, Ontario housing style high rises, where people just aren't getting the information. They're working two jobs. They've got lots of people in their apartment. Uh, they're not able to sit and watch media like the way people who work one job and have two children and maybe have a housekeeper and all of that kind of stuff, right? It's a different dynamic. So I think, Doctor Alam, you were speaking to that, right? Yeah. Yes, and I, I do, and I'm, my comment about the government, that has, I, I do agree with you, I think, with the caller who's spoken about there being a bigger willingness to trust the Canadian government. You can't take away um, the impact of um, how people have interacted with society and with their previous healthcare system and with their previous governments, particularly in recent immigrants who have not had a chance to get to know our system. And I know this because I work in an area where we see a lot of recent immigrants, and a lot of them don't even really understand what a family doctor is for, because they've never had a primary care system in their country, right? whatever country they come from. And so it takes a bit of time to teach them. My own parents, right? Their daughter is a a family doctor, right? And, And we've been in Canada for almost three decades now and um and they they're still surprised by what family doctors do much less what the rest of the healthcare system does it's a steep learning curve learning how to live in our society and and you can't minimize that i i think and again my comments are made with the best of intentions mm-hmm. my comments are more about making sure that we meet people where they're at we don't assume things about them that just because they're in Canada, they know how to speak English, they know how the school systems run, they know how the hospitals run, they know how family doctors work, they know how government works. All You can't assume that. You have to actually go to where they're at, ask them and approach them in mutually respectful ways and start introducing them to them. Yeah. Well, thank you for clarifying that, Dr. Alamet. And Jag, also thank you for bringing that perspective to our attention. We One more caller, then we have to uh, wrap it up. Dennis in Brampton, go ahead. Thank you for taking my call. And first up, a salute to the healthcare professionals on your panel. I know I personally mm-hmm. really appreciated my, both my pharmacist and family doctor. So my question is specific to comorbidity. So uh, I, I'm 75. I do have hypertension. I have had vascular surgery in the last four years. So I'm, I'm wondering if that qualifies as a comorbidity. Oh, good question. Uh, who would like to take that? Uh, <laughs> Dr. Or Dr. Dasani can take it. Dr. Dasani? Uh, you know, I, I, I suspect that that would count as comorbidities. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about multiple comorbidities, the whole issue here is who's vulnerable and thinking about who is immunocompromised, right? So I think even questions like this, which are great, discussion points for discussions like this are are important to, to are a huge reason why we need to include 
family doctors, primary care, our nurse practitioners, and our nurses in the community, because this it's this kind of assessment and triage that is going to take a lot of time. And it's it, it, to increase efficiency on vaccine rollout, what we're going to need is our professionals who, like Dr. Allen said, is, does this at high volume um, and already has a track record of being track record of being successful. We need to be able to use these mechanisms for success. And so um, this right here, to me, speaks to the example of why primary care is so important in increasing efficiency in the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Uh, pharmacist John Papasturgio, I'll give the final comment to you. Uh, what, what can you reassure our listeners with uh, in terms of waiting on information for the vaccine? Yeah, I think it's pretty much the same message we gave with flu this year. Be patient. We're going to expect the storm at the beginning. Once we get the logistics of the distribution, uh, you know, settled and organized, we'll be able to vaccinate, I think, everyone. And I think, uh, you know, accumulating the vaccine may be a challenge provincially and for the government, but I think we'll get there. Uh, we did that with flu. I think we ran out. We got more, ran out, got more. But in the end, I think most patients that uh, needed the flu shot got it. So hopefully uh, the same thing happens here. Uh, and, you know, I think we're all we're all here to help and we're all doing our best. And I think that's the best message we can get out right now. Well, all three of you have helped all of us today. So thank you for your time. Thank you very much for talking about this. This is so important. Shoppers Thank Drug you. Mart pharmacist John Pepper Sturgio, family physician Dr. Nadia Alam, and Dr. Nahid Dosani, a palliative care physician and health justice activist. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.